To Across the Margin, the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields, and today I'm thrilled about this episode as we have a great guest. Uh, we have Casey Ray coming on the program. He is the director of music licensing, licensing for SiriusXM and a longtime music critic whose work has been featured in a wide array of publications. Um, we're going to focus on his latest project. It's a book he just put out. It's called William S. Burroughs and the cult of rock and roll. It's incredible. Um, let me tell you a little bit about it. Uh, so William S. Burroughs' fiction and essays are legendary, but his influence on music's counterculture has been less than well-documented until now. Examining how one of America's most controversial literary figures altered the destinies of many notable and varied musicians, William S. Burroughs and the cult of rock and roll reveals the transformations in music history that can be traced back to Burroughs. Casey Ray brings to light Burroughs' parallel rise to fame among daring musicians of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s when it became a rite of passage to hang out with the author or to experiment with his cut-up techniques for producing revolutionary lyrics as bands such as uh, the Beatles have used, um, Radiohead did, uh, Dylan, uh, etc., etc. Whether they tell of him exploring the occult with David Bowie, providing Lou Reed with gritty depictions of street life, or counseling Patti Smith about coping with fame, the stories of Burroughs' backstage impact will transform the way you see America's cultural revolution and the way you hear its music. Um, that's from the back cover. This book is awesome. Uh, there's so much in it. There's not only a biography of Burroughs, but there's a biography of uh, you know all the musicians that they that they get into. It really it gives Burroughs his just due. Uh, in his place that he deserves in the pantheon of rock and roll. So I couldn't recommend it more. We're going we're gonna to dig into, uh, you know, we talk about the techniques, the cut-up techniques that I alluded to that so many people have used and, and just a lot of the different interactions with the musicians and his overall effects. So we get into it all. It's a good preview for the book. Um, but before we get going, Across the Margin, the podcast is part of the Osiris Network. Osiris is a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics they love. Go to OsirisPod.com to see all the podcasts they have, all the events they got going, and, and other varying content that they have to offer. So that's OsirisPod.com. Um, Casey, he actually has a podcast on the Osiris Network. It's, it's called Dead to Me, and it's a, a cross-cultural journey through the land of the dead where... Casey and his friend Eduardo Nunez explore a profound array of cultural intersections and how the Grateful Dead's legacy ripples through our contemporary reality. So yeah, it's a Grateful Dead podcast, and uh, Casey kind of came to the band later in life, and so he's got kind of a unique perspective um, on it. It's a kind of like a new take on um, the dead. They go through albums. It's, it's an awesome podcast. Check it out. And as you'll hear in this episode, Casey knows his music profoundly, so uh you know, it's he's he's the man to uh, listen to on that. So check it out. That's dead to me. And here is my interview with Casey Wright. 
Thanks for doing this. Um, it's 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 a, it's a book that I just it, I'm just floored by. I love it. Um, but uh, just to get going, and and you know, it's a little bit of a general question. But um, why William S. Burroughs? Why why uh, why'd you write this? Well, you know, it's kind of funny. Um, it, Burroughs was a, a something of a fixation of mine when I was a teenager and and maybe a slightly into my young adulthood uh you know but it, i hadn't really like lived and breathed his work in a number of years uh i always thought he was an interesting character uh in the 20th century you know he's sort of he's uh his icon is uh is very very uh distinctive you know uh even within like the the beat generation um his peers like Kerouac and Ginsburg and Gregory Corso. Uh, And I was into those uh, folks too, you know. I had my beat phase like a lot of young people who are sort of sharpening their intellectual um, teeth or whatever. Uh, So I was kind of, I was kind of, you know, it kind of all came as a pair or all kind of came together for me at that time. But, um, but Burroughs really stood out because you know there's just something about his life story. It's it's grim. It's uh, it's grisly. But his writing, on the other hand, is like sometimes scathingly funny. Yeah. And what uh, what kind of kept me going back to him here and there, uh, or or chuckling when I come across like a reference uh, that he made or something. Um, you know, I just feel like, oh man, that guy is just the, he's got the most acerbic uh, wit, and it, it, it but it comes out in such a strange. Um, kind of herky-jerky way and so i <laughs> i was interested in the sort of rhythm and meter of william s burroughs both in text and in, in his uh, you know rec- audio recordings mm. but you know like i said I, it wasn't like i um was reading him every night before i went to bed uh but the music connection was kind of funny because i grew up in the you know, 80s and um, 90s, and so it was right, right around the time when interest in Burroughs among a new generation of artists was just starting to uh, happen. Yeah. And this was, you know, multi, it was multimedia too. You know, Gus Van Sant, who also is a musician, mm-hmm. uh, but is known primarily as a director. Uh, cast Burroughs in a role in Drugstore Cowboy and you know you'd see William Burroughs in, in videos for like bands like Ministry Just One Fix video and uh, you know of course the collaboration with Kurt Cobain which was an audio recording called The Priest they called him so uh, you know a lot of that was happening uh, uh, in, in the sort of when I was coming of age uh, my interest in media my interest in music and my intellectual understanding of um, 20th century literature you know it was all just kind of coming together at the same time I, I had some friends in high school who were like older and cooler and <laughs> you know they turned me on to Naked Lunch and I read Naked Lunch and Junkie and obviously they made an impression and then into my early 20s I continued to investigate uh, Burroughs and, and, and became uh, more interested in his, his ideas or, or yeah. you know, I, I sort of see him as you know not just a traditional author. He's kind of like a multimedia sorcerer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He uh, he was uh, experimenting and and breaking the molds in multiple um, creative areas. And his influence, I think, the reason that it persists, uh, you know, across the decades is because it's so mutable. 
Yeah. And uh, and I think that's also why a lot of the, the musicians in the book, um, you know, from a whole broad range of genres and backgrounds, find something in Burroughs that's, uh, you know, unique to them. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was definitely, as you go through all the different artists, it was, it was, it was something else they were attracted to. There was different facets of Burroughs. Um, what was uh, interesting to me is that you mentioned in the intro that you didn't even realize the depth of the intersection between music and Burroughs that, that, that you ultimately came upon. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, I, the, it was easy to sort of understand the kind of greatest hits because there's a, you know, there's a photographic record, for example, of Burroughs hanging out with a lot of the punk rock people in the bunker in the 1970s. The bunker was a, a windowless YMCA that was converted to uh, living quarters and uh, Burroughs occupied the bottom floor, uh, you know, and held court there. It was like a couple blocks away from uh, CBGB. And so he became a fixture of the, the Bowery and, you know, was, uh, sort of affectionately known as the Pope of Dope in some circles, um, yeah, because punk rock and street heroin kind of blended together in a nice little melange of desperation in 1970s yeah. New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, the, I, I think the, that generation of musicians were, uh, you know, so, uh, familiar with his legend already, yeah. right, and kind of looked at him as a, an outlaw figure, a, a radical and anti-establishment mm-hmm. figure. Uh, whereas, you know, folks who were coming to him in the 60s, like Bob Dylan and the Beatles, uh, may have had different, uh, slightly different interests. Um, Paul McCartney, for example, was um, very much drawn to Burroughs' tape experiments and um, actually installed Burroughs in uh, a makeshift studio in a flat that was owned by Ringo Starr. And so McCartney would go there and sort of use it as a sandbox for um, for uh, demoing songs that would you know, sometimes turn up on Beatles albums. Like mm-hmm. he wrote Eleanor Rigby with, with William S. Burroughs uh, hanging around. Yeah. Uh, Burroughs was the first person to hear Eleanor Rigby. That's so crazy. <laughs> he, ended on on their album, he ended up on one of their album covers. Uh, yeah, he's on Sgt. Pepper. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Burroughs is on Sgt. Pepper, you know, with uh, you know, the, all the rest of the uh, luminaries and weirdos of, of 20th century culture. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so that kind of uh, is a signifier of his stature in, in the minds yeah. of musicians at a very early point. Similarly, Bob Dylan was infatuated with Burroughs and had a really uh, kind of obsessive Burroughs phase to the extent that when he uh, got to New York and, you know, he, he met Allen Ginsberg first, but basically begged Ginsburg to make the introduction to William S. Burroughs, his true quarry, uh, and, and Burroughs and Dylan did meet. And, um, you know, I, I think it's interesting that Burroughs shows up in the lives of these musicians that keep points in their creative development. Oftentimes it's a crossroads type uh, situation where, uh, you know, Burroughs serves as a catalyst or an uh, initiator. It's a, you know, a, a new depth of uh, creative realization. Yeah. Uh, Dylan was, was, I think, struggling, uh, you know, bristling against the, uh, the folk um, hero, uh, mantle that had been thrust on him uh you know because when his career first started taking off and after he meets Burroughs you see him uh, commit the greatest heresy which is you know to go electric at the Newport Folk Festival yeah. I mean, 
you released uh, bringing it all back home and so it kind of goes from black and white to technicolor and you can't describe all of that to Burroughs but I do think that Burroughs is among the sort of uh, creative intellectual stimulants or accelerants uh, you know that that uh, caused that rapid evolution in Bob Dylan's uh, creative output Absolutely. and I think that's true pretty much right straight through with the musicians who are majorly influenced by William S. Burroughs. Mm. David Bowie is another great example that we can talk about but in the book what I'm trying to really uh, the case for influence that I'm making is is deeper than the superficial and I hope gets at some of the themes that uh, Burroughs himself was uh, you know, very um, involved in, in exploring. Yeah, absolutely. No, I love that you... Uh just mentioned Dylan just because I mean you know you did mention how it, it could have been the the spark that um led to what happened in Newport I mean he kind of inspired some bravery but I love this little part here that you wrote uh to Dylan Burroughs was impossibly hip James Joyce with nasty habits T.S. Eliot with a cane sword Dylan's evolution from shy folky to idiosyncratic icon was greatly accelerated by his immersion in the rhythm and meter of Burroughs writing as scholar, yeah. as scholar James Adam notes, without Burroughs and his experiments, Dylan might not have pushed to compose lines that resemble cut-ups, but still emerge from some more personal, purposeful, honest, and human places like Dylan wrote in 1965. But So I just mentioned cut-ups, yeah. and we can't go any further right now without right. mentioning cut-ups and, right. what they are okay. and what they meant to the artist. So trying to unpack what that means, um, you know, essentially it's the it's the act of uh, introducing random chance into uh, you know some type of creative process, uh-huh. and this is this this type of approach is obviously predates William S. Burroughs. Uh, the Dadaists, for example, were kind of fond of using chance um, elements, uh, and even in even in Dadaist poetry, you'll find that um, you know it's the kind of thing like cut up a bunch of words and drop them in a hat. And then reassemble it. But Burroughs, uh, Burroughs started using cut-ups in a, I think, more deliberate and specific way. Mm-hmm. It originated uh, as text-based, uh, and his good friend Brian Geisen, you know, started off as more of a frenemy, but they became lifelong compatriots. And I think Brian Geisen probably was the most influential figure in uh, uh, Burroughs's intellectual and creative worldview and magical. Worldview, because yeah. Burroughs, Burroughs was a, ma- a magical thinker and, and believed very much in a magical universe. Oh, yeah. And in, and in fact, the, the cut-ups are uh, aren't, aren't just a tool to sort of. Uh, breakthrough creative log jams you know Geisen and Burroughs believed them to be cut-ups to be divinatory right uh, mm-hmm. Burroughs had uh, had a line you know cut into cut into the present and the future leaks out uh, and you know so there were they <laughs> they took this seriously but the the original way of doing a cut-up would be to take a, you know any kind of text and cut it into four quadrants and just rearrange the quadrants of course you can also rearrange entirely different pieces of text uh, you know, take a, a you know one panel from here and one panel from there, uh, and then of course you know there's variations on that. And Burroughs also was using the same type of idea with his audio and tape experiments, and I think that too is is something that Paul McCartney uh, zeroed in on, uh, at, but later ended up uh, forming the the sort of 
creative basis, the the praxis, the approach of an entire new genre of music called industrial, uh, largely through the efforts of um, uh, the artist Genesis P. Orit and the band Throbbing Bristle. Now, Throbbing Bristle is still a very much an underground band even now. I mean, they've had you know, they have their uh, they have their adherents, uh, but they were a hugely influential band in in the industrial and post punk universe, and you know that influence extends it you know well into our present um but certainly bands like nine inch nails would not have existed without uh throbbing bristle and genesis peorge was um interested in burroughs's recombination of media to get at sort of a higher truth it might be an occult truth but to get at a different level of sort of uh revelation uh, i suppose uh and that's that's fundamentally an occult conceit david bowie uh probably was interested in both of the both the sort of occult elements of cut-ups and then also the, the, the practical benefit of uh, you know having creative serendipity open up new uh, possibilities in your in your expression, right? Yeah. Uh, and so all of that's just a really long way of saying it got them out of some creative jams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. A fun, different way to think about things. And I mean, it, it seeped into so many of the lyrics that, I mean, are pretty commonplace in a lot of music fans' life. One of the things cut-ups was used by him too in ideal idealistically by him is to fight back so a lot of uh, the musicians we are speaking of i think you know they were gravitated to him as we already said for a lot of different reasons but one of them is the way he struck back at authority and yeah he described this authority this this thing as as, as control with a capital c and he was using right. cut-ups to combat control can you speak on that just idea for a little bit yeah. i think it's central so, to his like his entire mission there's probably different layers of control thematically that we can unpack in Burroughs's, you know, bizarre worldview. But certainly, uh, you know, there are also mechanisms of control. And I think Burroughs saw mass media as a mechanism of control. And that's a, an awful lot like, uh, you know, the, the political ideology of, you know, folks, certain you know, folks today, right? Uh, sort of chaos agents who uh, use weaponized memes on this thing called the internet to uh, undermine, um, you know, formerly stable institutions. And, you know, this is the dark side of the Burroughs mythos, right? Like, I'm very uncomfortable with that because, you know, I happen to think that liberal democracy has conferred a lot of benefits on humanity. (laughs) Right? Uh, And, and, you know, it's like, it's not so much the the destruction I'm worried about, it's what replaces it, okay? And, but, you know, Burroughs didn't really get that far, but he he basically predicted a future where, and this is a, this is only light paradigm Paraphrasing, I think I'm going to be trying to as direct capture it as directly as possible. Sure. He said, "In the future, there um, uh, information will be communicated electronically, right? Like, but he talked specifically about units of text, small units of text, image, and sound, you know, rearranged and weaponized." We're talking, <laughs> and like, we're talking about you know, memes. We, yeah, about we memes. live in a meme and mashup yes. culture, yep. you know. Uh, and and Brian Geisen, who uh, who again was Burroughs's um, 
close creative uh, compatriot uh, said, we perform cut-ups until the machine arrives, you know, and to me that's almost like, that's predictive of the internet. So you can sort of uh, see Burroughs as, you know, this this soothsayer, this, um, this uh, you know, 20th century Nostradamus yeah. in some ways, but his vision is exceptionally bleak. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, not, it's not pretty. Uh, it's it's quite ghastly, uh, and and you know oftentimes uh, you know sometimes it can be you know satirical and grotesque in in, in that way, uh, but other times you know it really does seem predictive of some of the uh, social forces that we're experiencing today. Um, but the other interesting thing about Burroughs' vision of control is on, on one level, like, it's much more basic than that. The man became a heroin addict, you know, in his, um, in his 20s and had, uh, you know, just a, a long, long life of, you know, battling addiction. And so control is, is sort of a metaphor for addiction. It's, it's a metaphor for anything that compels us to uh, behave in a way that is uh, uh, not freedom. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. That's conditioned. And so he was looking to sort of get beyond the conditioning. Uh, and, you Which know, some, something sometimes... Rock stars would be so attracted to, getting past... That's the, right. I mean, yeah, they want to break down. They want to break on through to the other side, yes, you know? Right. And and so there's the, uh, you know, there's that whole impulse to just sort of smash, smash what? I don't know, but, you know, like smash. Yeah. Uh, Burroughs actually <laughs> did tell you what to smash. He said, smash the citadels of the Enlightenment. Yeah. Which you know is a scary thought because I think you know right now it's looking they're looking pretty smashed. Yep. yep. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> who, who, you know, I guess he didn't see what it would be like if it was all broken down like that. But uh, I guess you know something I'm, I'm I'm hearing when you're saying all this it's it's there's like a a, a duality here and I, it, something that comes up in the book so often and and that you say explicitly but like you ponder about as a reader is. Was his influence good on these rock stars or not? And NPR had a great line about how you present it. um, You always present Burroughs' duality, uh, shaman and madman, writer and hermit, traveling man and depressed genius. I mean, you make a strong effort in this book not to, you know, say one way or the other if uh, Burroughs' influence on the world is correct or right or wrong well you know it's an interesting let me tell you it's an interesting uh, approach to try to flesh out a character and and, and, and have people understand something of his motivations while yeah. also retaining you know the the enigmatic uh, aspects that make him such a compelling and interesting figure yeah. uh, and that in itself, in itself is I suppose kind of a contradiction or, or duality uh, you know as you describe yeah. but uh, but honestly I, I think you know Burroughs had a lot to try to uh, escape within his own, you know, life story, right? Um, uh, we talked about control being, you know, something that conditions you and, 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 and you know, never lets you go, mm. right? It's like the, you know, Spider-Man's villain, uh, uh, Venom and the symbiote yeah. suit. You know, it's like the symbiote suit. Yeah. It's like it's it's in you. It's on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the uh, it's um, it's the uh, flesh typewriter. It's emblazoned onto your soft machine. It's part of your DNA. <laughs> you know, how do you break that down? And you know, how to actually break that down isn't just a Barosian thing, right? Like this is like also kind of like a fundamentally Buddhist outlook, right? Yeah. How do you how do you prevent the the suffering? Uh, you know, that comes from rebirth. Well, you have to knock out one of the limbs of the 
the the 12 limbs of dependent origination you know everything relating to something else everything you just got to knock that out and see through it and see through the matrix and then supposedly you know you you, you won't have to go through the whole bag and so you know burroughs is kind of having that uh outlook but also a deeply uh, deeply traumatic and personal yeah. uh experience of it because here's another thing he shot his wife in the head uh, it was ruled an accident, and I do believe it was an accident. They got drunk. Uh, they got terribly, terribly drunk in Mexico City. And, you know, he said, supposedly said, Joan, I think it's time for our William Tell routine. And she put the shot glass on her head, and he attempted to aim. And, you know, he was not successful, even though he was uh, otherwise known as a fairly crack marksman. He had a lifelong interest in firearms. Loved guns. Um, you know, another thing that I just don't have in common with him whatsoever either. But I suppose, like, I'm compelled to explore those darker things because I want to know what would motivate somebody, you know, who I, I do have a, a lot of respect for in, in, in some regard. And I do also uh, consider uh, a positive influence in my own, you know, creative development and understanding what you can do uh, as an artist. You know, how bold and, you know, all of the same um, sort of inspirational uh, flashpoints that I describe with all of these musicians that everybody knows. I mean, I've experienced them myself on, you know, whatever level. Uh, and so I relate to Burroughs' um, uh, intense probing intellect and, like I said, his scathing wit. But, you know, I also have to uh, have to examine, and I do this in the book, hopefully with the right amount of, um, uh, you know, the... A yes. sober eye, yeah. right? Like, yeah. you know, the this heinous act in particular. Yeah. Burroughs didn't forgive himself for that. He and never let I, himself off the hook. He, that. Never, to, he to never did. To his dying breath. He yeah, and so... And so I don't feel like I have to forgive him either, right? Yeah. Uh, but I can look at that as an event in his life that conditioned his worldview to such an extent that he probably felt compelled to create this entire mythos of control and spent so much time trying to figure out how to, like, a reality hack, I guess that's what I, you would call it, yeah, in order to change the, you know, the, the outcome uh, from a prior deed. Uh, but at the same time, he couldn't really seem to stop himself, you know, in, you know, from, from, uh, you know, he was a really nice, sweet person to everyone who knew him, but he was also, you know, a, a, kind of a, a deadbeat dad, you know what yeah. I mean? Um, he was not around. Uh, he was off traveling the world. He had a son with uh, Joan Vollmer, and his son died of, uh, you know, essentially alcoholism. He burned through a kidney and stopped taking his medication. He died when he was in his 30s, I think, early 30s. Yeah, he was. 30, 30, and, and so, yeah, and so... Uh, and so, you know, there's this tragedy and trauma that Burroughs experienced, and a lot of it was self-inflicted. But I think that that, that damaged quality is also uh, authentic to the lives of some of the musicians who were drawn to him. Yeah. Somebody like Patti Smith, for example, would have, uh, you know, experienced her own version of, you know, a deep uh, familial trauma when she uh, gave birth and uh, put the baby up for adoption uh, from a teenage pregnancy. And then, you know, but she made up her mind that she was going to go to New York City. That's what the song Piss Factory is about. Yep. And she was gonna she was gonna transform herself. And Burroughs was all about uh, self initiated transformation uh, and mutation. The characters in his books, you know, tend to mutate into entirely different characters in the span of a you know couple of paragraphs sometimes. And uh, and so willful directed uh, self initiated mutation. 
Nation is also a theme. And you could see that with Patti Smith. You yeah. could see that with David Bowie for sure. Uh, you know, you could see it with Bob Dylan. And I think that's another uh, common point that these artists, innovators, um, are uh, sort of looking at William S. Burroughs as a human roadmap uh, in, in terms of um, uh, initiating transformation creatively and, uh, and psych- in, in the psyche. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you had, right when you mentioned that, I thought about Kurt. When Kurt was looking at him, he was kind of looking at what he could be if he can get through. He's like, he's, if he, yeah. he dealt with all that. Uh, but, uh, I mean, your book definitely, it jumps through in a bunch of what we mean you have talked about greatest hits of rock stars I mean we talked about yeah. the Beatles we talked about the Rolling Stones Jimmy Page is huge let's talk about one more because you yeah. mentioned to me and we've already touched on him a little but I really want to hear just your thoughts on this you mentioned that Bowie uh, your words were exactly Bowie was all in on Burroughs that's, that's, he that's, was yeah yeah in what way so you know Bowie really took to heart uh, you know a, a, the whole universe of Burroughs um, interests, I would say. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and Bowie is you know something of a chameleon and something of a copycat, I, I, I guess. And, I, and I'm, I'm a huge Bowie fan, and I I think that his uh, his ability to synthesize uh, you know through mimicry, I think, is kind of a key to his his own. Be a creative genius, uh, yeah. genius you know, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, so there's a little bit of an identikit kind of aspect to that. Uh, you know, with the character Ziggy Stardust, for example, Bowie was kind of cribbing from two, um, you know, sort of source, two sources, uh, A Clockwork Orange by Stanley Kubrick and a book by William S. Burroughs called The Wild Boys. Mm. Now, both books uh, depict like you know a apocalyptic future of teenage hoodlums essentially run amok you know it's like a-chan come to life uh and you know again it, this is scary uh but and bowie was interested in that bowie was also interested in the the sort of occult aspects of, of cut-ups uh as well because you know he saw the relationship to uh you know chance as being like a sort of mystical uh, additional layer uh burroughs called it it, um, you know, when he would do this type of um, create, creative work in partnership with Brian Geisen, he said they achieved a third mind. Mm. Uh, and, third you know, so thing, yeah. I think Bowie was kind of interested in those concepts and ideas, too. Uh, but, um, you know, he also really, uh, I think, made persistent, the most persistent use of cut-ups as a, as a compositional tool. Yeah. Uh, even in the 1990s, he worked with a software developer to create kind of one of the first apps, basically, uh, and it would, you know, it would perform cut-ups automatically. Wow. But that was something that Burroughs and his um, boyfriend, Ian Somerville, who was also a Beatles engineer yeah. uh, for a little while, were doing way back in the 60s, but, you know, Bowie kept, you know, trying to hone it, uh, and she he was using cut-ups right up uh, through his uh, last album, Black Star. You know, not on everything. And even Burroughs would, you know, not leave the um, the cut-ups necessarily unaltered. He, you know, there, there was often further editing yeah, sure. that would happen. Sort of um, part of the process in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. sort of part of the process. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Bowie uh, takes, a, you know, a certain set of things from Burroughs, but in the same chapter of the book, I also talk about uh, Burroughs' impact on Luke Reed, which I think is equally profound, yeah. but differently. Very uh, different. You know, 
know, Burroughs' early books like Junkie and Queer, which was written in the 50s but not published until the uh, mid-80s. But Junkie uh, came out in the, in the, in the uh, uh, 50s, before Naked Lunch, before any of that, uh, before the Wild Boys, before the Nova Trilogy, before, you know, uh, all those experimental works, uh, the cut-up works. Um, and and the, his writing style is much more hard-boiled kind of like it's like it's sort of like a gumshoe you know uh it, it's uh it's streetwise gumshoe uh, uh sort of uh style but you know the subject matter is just uh, let's just say it's it captures the tr- the real color yeah. of the experience yeah the, the seedy underworld <laughs> yeah the seedy underworld <laughs> yeah. and i and I think that dir- that directness without moral imposition is something that Lou Reed took from Burroughs and would readily admitted it, right? Yeah. Like, he, he, he said that Burroughs was the guy who opened up that whole universe to him, uh, you know, that you could actually write in that way. And d- Lou did it with music, but you look at something like even Walk on the Wild Side, right? You know, really, he's just kind of reporting. Yeah. He's just telling he's you about that the scene. These are the people. These are the people. These are the characters. And yeah. they just happen to every person in, in Walk on the wild side was a real person yep. hanging around uh you know cool to think about. yeah and um you know much like you know the same the same is true with junkie i mean like all of those hustlers the street hustlers the pimps the dealers and everybody else you know they're uh you know they're all real people that burroughs was sort of describing in his inimitable uh way you know that sort of staccato uh way that he has it's it just draws you in it's like the spider to the fly yeah absolutely um so i have to know just because uh it's kind of unfathomable to me um this is you know you get this connection you talk about this connection between burrows and rock and roll and you bring us all into that but i mean it also this book also acts as like a biography of william s burrows and on top of that each time you introduce uh, another rock star, uh, yeah. you know, we get like a biography of them as well. What yeah. was the research involved in this? This is, I mean, this is, there's a lot to chew on in here. And I'm saying that in the best of ways. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm in all of it. It was, it was quite <laughs> it was a process pretty, bringing it to life, huh? It was pretty big, yeah. I mean, the first <laughs> thing I had to figure out was like, you know, it does follow more or less a chronological uh narrative the timeline you know what i mean uh you know i start with the cobain scene just because i think it makes a good bookend for where we end up in lawrence kansas and also it's a little bit uh closer to you know the um uh, contemporary uh i mean at this point nirvana is like a classic rock band like led zeppelin was to me when i was a teenager but you know, the, the kids will still know who that is, yeah. whereas they might uh, not really know as much about Lou Reed yeah. or Patti Smith. Hope, hopefully, they'll learn something yeah. if you know it's, it's if, that if kid a kid ever picks this up. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. uh, but but you know, so that, that was kind of a, on purpose. But the rest of it does follow a, a timeline, and the and the trick was to really bring out those core themes and have each chapter sort of serve uh, to advance those ideas thematically, while also keeping to that timeline. While also so uh, helping folks understand what made these artists tick. Because yeah. you have to know who they are in order to be able to relate to how they viewed Related Burroughs. Because yeah. Burroughs is a prism. Everyone saw something different in him. Uh, and in order to get a good p- detailed picture of what they saw, we have to know what their reflection is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, 
And so that's what we, you know, have to, uh, uh, that's what I had to establish. And I did the best right. I could. I mean, you know, nothing's, <laughs> nothing's perfect. <laughs> if, if, uh, if, if you were going to be said, no writer is ever satisfied with their, Never. with their final, nope. with what ends up being the final draft. And no musician is satisfied, no matter what they tell you, with what ends up being the final mix, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're always going to be able to hear something or, or, or uh, read something and think, hmm, uh, maybe maybe this deserved a little bit more exposition, or maybe this. I think, uh, uh, I think Coppola is going to redo Apocalypse Now every five years. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's like the best movie of all time, but he's, he's not going to be done with it. Yeah, well, uh, you know, we're not going to digitally recreate Jabba the Hutt here or yeah. anything, or make or make Greedo shoot first. But yeah. uh, but at some point, you have to put it down and, and say, I did the best I could. Yeah, <laughs> And uh, I, I, I feel uh, gratified that, you know, other uh, folks seem to be enjoying it. And, um, yeah. you know, but you, awesome, as man. you know, when you write a book, it's a long process. And, and then even after the book is done, it, t- it takes a little while to bring it to the market. Sure. Uh, if you're, you know, with a publisher... And uh, you know, so by the time that's all done, you sort of like, what did, what, what, did, what even is this? <laughs> you yeah. know. Uh, but then I, you kind of get to live vicariously a little bit through other people's reaction, and I'm just, I'm just delighted that you know the reaction has been positive. Good. I mean, you kind of alluded to you're on to the next a little bit, and that's yeah. totally understandable. I know you know what the next is, and I, yeah. want, I want you to tell us right now what the next yeah. is. Yeah, I can talk I'm about excited. it. I'm I can super, talk about it now. I'm super excited about it. <laughs> I'm scared it's... to death uh, of actually producing the thing. Yeah. Uh, I think in, you know, in terms of research and the amount of personal, I think, investment in, uh, in it is going to be even higher because uh, I think it requires <laughs> – <laughs> like a lot of uh, original insight, I hope to, yep. to, to, to pull these strands together. But enough of my namby pambying. <laughs> um, the book is called "The Zen of the Dead." The Zen of the Dead, and it's uh, you essentially can, uh, so you're speaking of the the Grateful Dead, I believe. The Grateful Dead, yeah. yeah. And so the the idea here is that you know it's kind of the others, the flip side of this Burroughs book, which looks at the beat generation and rock and roll and its impact on 20th century culture. Uh, but you know, it's on the East Coast at first, and then it's expat as Burroughs goes around the world and uh, eventually returns to New York and ends up in Kansas at the end of his life. But here we have this sort of West coast story and i'm tracking three um i think three parallel three tracks well there if there's three of them um i guess they can how does parallelism work i don't even know uh, i haven't slept in a while um <laughs> i've got basically three tracks that we're, uh, i'm following i'm uh-huh. looking uh the big overview is uh, is uh, buddhism in the west what cool. is that what does that mean in America, in particular, uh, and what does that mean, you know, in the, with, within the emerging counterculture of the mid twentieth century, and also what? How does the dead fit into this? Well, in a surprising number of ways, <laughs> you know, as it turns out, much like the Burroughs book, on the human level, there's a whole lot of overlap, and I'm, you know, and, and those stories are going to get told, I think. But then there's the other elements of the Grateful Dead where I actually kind of see them as the as, as a truly tantric rock band. You know what I mean? Like, so sure, on one level, they're they're absolutely absolute libertines, and it's hard to sort of associate that with what one would imagine to be a sort of sober contemplative discipline like Buddhism. Uh, but really, the practice of it is very similar. And the, that 
really play at the, at, at the they, they they attempt in their music to transcend uh, duality uh, as well, right? Like there's a whole universe of things to explore within Grateful Dead lyrics and uh, iconography, which you know deals with impermanence. It deals, and then there's the this sort of spontaneous, creative, uh, in the now kind of uh, approach and Jerry Garcia himself kind of uh, sort of acts as a kind of like substitute <laughs> he's like Buddha for dropouts you know what I mean <laughs> so, me, like, I'm, also, yeah. I'm interested in the, in the, in the cult like aspect yeah. as well you know uh, yeah. because um, and you know so, so it's just amazing history here and like I said there's I found that there was enough overlap like direct overlap in the development of these three main you know psychedelic Buddhism uh, uh, the Grateful Dead and uh, and you know the 60s counterculture and you know probably what becomes the, the new age movement ultimately yeah. you know because but, but all coming from the same source you know uh, and um, the beat folks you know the, are, are going to be right back in play it won't be Burroughs this time but you know Allen Ginsberg plays a big big role in this story uh, you know Jack Cassidy uh, obviously you know, overlaps with the dead in some significant ways. Uh, and so, you know, and, and it's just all part of the, you know, what I consider to be a, a really interesting, uh, stew of, uh, mm-hmm. of, of culture at, at a time period. And, you know, we're going to trace that along like uh, you know, probably the same number of years, essentially. Right. We're going to go all the way up to the present, right? Because I think we're seeing a revival in a lot of this stuff, too. Um, psychedelicized Buddhism, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the, I think also there's that sense of community uh, that people um, are, are really desperately need to feel right now. And that you know, even the dead, even though the dead aren't an active concern, I think uh, the dead community sort of functioned as, as that the world's largest mobile, uh, you know, Psychedelic cult, I guess. Hundred percent. That's that's true yeah. again. No, and so that'll be on Oxford University Press probably oh, in twenty twenty one. Yep. So like, I'm, uh, this will be research year for me, and then next year I'll do the bulk of the writing. Although I probably will write along the way too. Yeah. Good uh, it sounds. Yeah. That's, that's, no, it sounds absolutely incredible. You know, you can see why I'm kind of like <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm really like personally invested in this. I was not a deadhead for like most of my life. I only uh, fairly recently became uh obsessed with grateful dead yep. uh hey but, it, it uh, but my love is pure Welcome. yeah <laughs> no your pure. love is pure and no and that's what <laughs> i think that's a good thing about your podcast too dead to me it's kind of um you know it's it's a lot of us or a lot of people have been in it forever yeah. And it's kind of like it's fun to get these fresh eyes, especially you yeah. with like your musical background and, and analytical background. Um, you know, you're kind of confirming a lot of things that we love and also putting our eyes on some things that, that we might have not thought of. I don't know. It's it's a cool at the time. Right. You know, because I yeah. have the benefit of a type of uh, hindsight, hindsight yep. here uh, that you know, one thing that I can't do is go to a dead show. That's forever foreclosed to yep. me. Uh, you know, but believe it or not, I don't like live shows all that much. Oh, <laughs> you know, I, I used to cover music for a living and, you know, I've seen some of the greatest shows I've, you know, oh, truly life changing shows. And I'm not like trying to like brag or, no, or whatever, but everybody has. True. Right. Yep, yep. But I sort of feel like, Oh yeah. You know, I, I know what that's about. Uh, uh, and you know, I'm also an old person, uh, and I don't like crowds. So, like, <laughs> so all of these things are probably like lend themselves to not like wanting to experience a show like a dead show, even when you know back in the day when they were around. I mean, I, I, I intend to go see like 
you know, if De- Dead and Company, you know, I haven't seen them yet, but I probably will if they're still uh, working it. Uh, you know, I'd go see J Rad and stuff like that to sort yeah. of get a sense of what the J-Rad. evolution. I would like you know, to play the evolution J Rad. Those are some of my favorite musicians, and they're playing. The, oh, they're great! Uh, I mean, I, I think they're fantastic. The I love Scott watching. You know. I'll couch tour all day long. Oh, cool. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so you're, like that, yeah, but, you just don't want the people. I get it. Man. Yeah, I just I like to do it, do it from bed, man. <laughs> that technology. Way, technology. That when I have the, that way when I have the deep when I have the deep thoughts, I could just like write them down. Write them down <laughs> right I mean? Hey, you'd be surprised. A lot of people, Scott Marks, a lot of people bring pads to shows. <laughs> That's true. They do. They, they do. do. Hey, um, let me write yeah. this down with like a, a question that I want to yeah. get like just a touch personal because I I think. Um, you kind of allude to the fact that that writing this book changed you a little bit. I mean, you do. You mentioned in the acknowledgments that you came yeah. to better terms with your own um, inescapable journey towards Western lands, which obviously yeah. we all know what that means. But I'm curious if you could just speak on real quick after spending so much time with Burroughs' thoughts, his ideas, and the story of his life. I mean, how did this change you? What do you feel right now about this whole thing? You know, it taught me a lot about, uh, you, you know, I, I did, it felt like it did develop compassion, you know, to an extent, oh, because wow. you come to recognize, you know, that we're all deeply flawed people and that really we're just looking for love in some way. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of uh, the, the creative folks in, in the Burroughs book, it didn't come from great family lives. I mean, or maybe superficially they were great, but there was, you know, something underneath that was traumatic. You know, Reed's parents, uh, upper middle class parents sent him to electroshock therapy when he was teenager and it, 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 it that, that deeply, blew, learning that blew my mind yeah, it was just it was such a scarring experience for him and you know so I think it's some of that is about how like outlaws uh, define family and uh, how yeah. they connect and of course my family got a little bit bigger while we were uh, putting this thing together um, you know with the birth of our daughter Ruby mm-hmm. who joins you know her older sister Clara who's you know now nine you know she's like a big kid but so the new baby had me thinking a little bit about like you know I'm, I'm an older dad at this point right you know and so you're looking simultaneously ahead but you're also you know to her what she's going to experience in her life but you know also you know you have that feeling like yeah there's an, there's an end to this uh, luckily i spend most of my time like probably 99.9 percent of my waking time is spent you know uh trying to uh relate to impermanence or, yeah, and not, not, nece- not, necess- not necessarily in a scary way okay. right yep. uh, good, uh, but way. you know i used to be like you know i used to be like deeply deeply uh, troubled i think <laughs> agitated uh by the idea uh and so the burroughs book in in some ways represented like a i don't i don't know it's like getting right with with impermanence is the is the idea but uh it's sort of help me situate things in my life so I could start to do the real work. Mm-hmm. I think that the next book is actually going to really be that real work. Yeah. Uh, and I hope there is of benefit, you know, so the, the goal with this Burroughs book was like, Oh cool. I get to write a book. You know, it kind of came, it just, it was something that came up in my life. And obviously you take the opportunity to, uh, and see it through. And I'm proud that I did. And I'm glad that people have gotten something out of it. Yeah. But you know, the next one is I think going to be even more personal since we're ending on a personal note, uh, just because I, I feel that, you know, if I have any, anything to give here, you know, this is hopefully a way for some of that to come out, you yeah. know, for, uh, to, for other people. Uh, yeah. yeah, not you just know? for yourself, maybe, maybe. Yeah, for other people. The entire thing. 
Um, just for anyone listening here, we I mean I feel like we touched on a lot of things in about forty minutes, but we touched on so little of what's in this book. So like with anything, uh, you got to read the fucking book, and it just there's so much going on there. And but I, I before before I say uh, thank you and goodbye, I'd like to say bravo because and. Like this book gives Burroughs uh, something that he he really deserved, and it's it's his just due in the the place of of, of like the pantheons of rock and roll. He's never yeah. he's never truly been associated correctly with it, you know his rock and roll right. ties. And like you he, know, did he, it, didn't, he did it, he didn't he didn't even him. really like it, like the music. Yeah, he wasn't but even I, into I, rock and roll, but like he affected so much of it, which is crazy. And it makes sense to explore his, I thank you for saying that because I, I, I believe that it does make sense to explore his, uh, you, you know, the, what his work was about uh, through this lens. And it gave a sort of unique opportunity to do that in a way that maybe hadn't been done before. So I'm glad that you caught that, um, you know, because that was part of the agenda with yeah. this project. Yeah, it's, it's in the book. Rock music can be seen as one attempt to break out of this dead, soulless universe and reassert the universe of magic and so there's a lot of magic in this book thank you yep. thank you uh thank you for taking the time to talk about it man i'm, I'm really excited about that all right thanks so much michael right. take care casey cool bye This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.